Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Dana McCarthy. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Kelly McKee, Senior Director of Patient Recruitment and Registries at Metadata, who will be leading a discussion on enabling clinical trial continuity with live video visits. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks so much, Danny. It's great to be here. Before we get started and you bring on everyone else, I would love to just make a small note of the term decentralized clinical trials. So we might be referring to it in a couple different ways during this podcast. If you could kind of just briefly walk us through maybe some of the potential words that we might be using just so the audience is all clear. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about that. There are so many ways that various individuals uh, like to talk about uh, telemedicine video visits, virtual visits, decentralized visits, direct to patient visits, telemedicine, telehealth. I'm sure everyone can think of about five more. But in this particular podcast, we will be referring to all of those things as decentralized or direct to patient visits and components. Without further ado, I'd love for you to take it away and introduce the rest of the panel. Great, thank you. I'm so happy to be joined by three outstanding individuals in our industry. Uh, first, I'd like to say hello to Roz Brown, the Vice President of Patient Innovation Center and Decentralized Trials at Parexcel. Hi, Roz. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, next, I'd like to say hello to Dr. Jeff Kingsley, the, who is a principal investigator, the founder and CEO of IACT Health, and the founder and ch chair of the board of HyperCore International. Hi, Jeff. Hello. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce Anne-Marie Mercurio, who's a patient advocate, caregiver, writer, and speaker. She sits on a number of advisory panels and MCI review panels and is a member of Metadata's Patient Design Studio. Hi, Anne-Marie. Hi, Kelly. All right, so I've got lots of questions in just a little bit of time for all of you. So let's dive right in. COVID-19 is on all of our minds as we live in this uh, time of a pandemic, and it's rapidly transformed the way that we engage with our primary healthcare providers in our daily lives. But has the clinical trial landscape adapted as rapidly? And if it has, why has it? And if it hasn't, why hasn't it? I'd like to start with Roz. What are your thoughts here? Um, yes, it absolutely has changed the clinical trial landscape really, really quickly. I think it's had to. Um, obviously, when the pandemic hit, there was a lack of access to hospitals for so many people. Um, they weren't able to go to sites for visits, even if they'd wanted to. Um, and it was important for people to make sure that they still had oversight from their physicians, that patient safety was still top of everyone's mind, they were still getting data quality, and all of those things that are really important. So yeah, the, the landscape evolved so fast, and we pivoted very quickly. I think sometimes in challenging times like these, um, innovation really blossoms and that's certainly what we've seen. Thanks, Roz. And Jeff, as a physician and a principal investigator, what are your thoughts here? Have clinical trials rapidly advanced in the way that our normal primary care healthcare providers have advanced in this time? So I'm going to give you a two-part answer. Compared to how sluggishly slow we were moving before, our adoption of technology right now that is favorable to direct to patient has absolutely blossomed. That piece I agree with. However, I'm gonna cast a little bit of a jaundiced eye to it. I still see loads of protocol designs without any direct to patient component. 
and I see loads of protocol designs where the direct-to-patient component is to physically send a home health nurse into a patient's living room, which is bypassing the, the ability to use technology. So we're still kind of grabbing at our old-fashioned ways of thinking of how we can visit with patients. And why do you think there's hesitation there with adopting these telemedicine video visits, direct-to-patient trial components, especially when regulators have really carved a path and the technology exists? Jeff, I'm going to stay with you here. You know, not only have regulators carved a path, regulators have actually slapped us on the wrist. Scott Gottlieb, on his way out, basically chastised the industry for not being fast enough to adopt technologies that could enhance our ability to conduct clinical research. I think our hesitation is completely wrapped up around fear. No one wants to be the first. No one wants to jeopardize their effort by introducing technology that could be problematic. And so there's a little bit of, of a who's going to go first, and there's a little bit of a fear that the technology won't keep up or work well enough. And I'm seeing that today with e-consent. So I have trials going on with e-consent right now where every time they update the e-consent platform, I'm shut down for about four days and I have to go to paper and then scan all the paper back into the e-consent portal. And experiences like that are precisely what are making the industry hesitant to proceed. Roz, can you comment on that from an industry perspective? I can, yes, absolutely. So I would say there is some degree of variation between sponsors in terms of their, um, their approach to these different technologies. Um, but the adoption that we've seen has just been huge compared to pre-pandemic. It really has accelerated things in a way that we couldn't have anticipated, I think. And actually, we've seen more um, of the, <laughs> sorry about this, Jeff, we've seen more hesitation maybe from some of the sites rather than our sponsors. Um, I think from what we've heard from speaking to site staff, some sites were kind of worried pre-COVID. Not everyone's a technology whiz. And I think sometimes these things sound a bit more scary than they actually are. And with everyone being in lockdown over the past couple of months, everyone's Zoom calling each other and chatting to their grandparents. And everyone's kind of got more used to technology. And some of these things have had to be done at sites and kind of push people to do things sometimes where they may not have felt like doing it before. And from what we've heard from some of the site stuff we've talked to, that kind of push has led them to go from kind of previous reticence to realizing they can actually make really positive and meaningful human connections. Um, and we've also heard in some areas as well that compliance has actually increased because there's less of a burden on patients to travel, to find childcare, um, to take time off work. When things are just done for them in their home, then um, it's a lot easier. And, um, and also we've heard that for some sites, they really like that insight into what it's like for a patient outside the clinic. They might see their dog or a family member or something. And so it gives this different kind of nuance and it, it gives a different kind of um, slant on the relationship maybe that they've had. So I think we're not there yet with um, optimizing all trials with technology, but we've definitely made a huge leap forward over the last few months. If I could jump back in first, don't apologize to me. I agree with you. I have principal investigators who don't have smartphones. I have principal investigators who can't reset a password without somebody showing them again how to get to the hyperlink. Not every great principal investigator can be great with use of technology. Totally agree with you, that is a barrier. Anne-Marie, can you chime in here on patient perspective? Are you seeing telemedicine video visits occurring in the clinical trial setting? Are they going well? Just share your thoughts here with us, please. 
So I'm going to uh, tag on to what both Roz and Jeff just alluded to, and that is the, the use of technology. I, I think we need to be mindful of the fact that what we, the last thing we want to be doing with clinical trials is widening the disparity in accrual across multiple populations. And I think that, you know, for example, if I were to speak personally, my mom is 82 years old. She does not have hard, her internet is hardwired. She does not have a webcam. So for her to do a virtual or a telehealth visit or to try to e-consent for something, I can't even go to her with my laptop because I have no way of plugging into um, her hardwired internet with my very modern laptop. So I have to get her to my house to, to do a, a, a video anything. So I think we need to be mindful of that. And, and then as Jeff just said, there are, there are people that you know, don't have smartphones or don't know how to properly use a smartphone. So we want, I think we wanna be really mindful of while we're doing all of this, how are we making sure we're not leaving any potential participant behind? How are we capturing the widest possible representation of what the patient population looks like and making sure that there's representation from all of those groups? You know, whether it's rural, whether it's minority populations, whatever it is, we need to be sure that everyone is versed in how to use these technologies because they are pretty great. They are really not pretty great. They're very great. And uh, when they work properly, it's, it's phenomenal. It's a great savings on patients' time, the traveling, the sitting in the waiting room. I, I can go in a million directions here, which I won't but I'm just going to leave it right there. It is, but it is a great benefit to patients if it works right and if we're not leaving anyone behind. I know that some sponsors are provisioning devices to individuals who don't have the technology and providing um, very robust training. And I know that metadata is certainly involved in that. Roz, can you speak a little bit about how you think of all patients when you're designing the incorporation of these types of technologies? Absolutely, yes. The first thing we have to do is ask the patient, and we learned that very early on in our decentralized trial journey. Um, one of the first projects that we ever looked at was in RA patients, and they had to um, partake in 52 visits over 52 weeks, and 39 of those were um, medication dosing only. So we thought decentralized would be the perfect way to go. Luckily, we surveyed patients, and over the course of a weekend, we had over 1,500 RA patients responded, and most of them really like going to the clinic they didn't actually want telehealth they didn't want nurse in the home they were happy as they were they liked seeing the healthcare team regularly and so if we just gone ahead without asking them then it would have obviously been disastrous so I think making sure that you ask patients what they want and building in flexibility as well um, so that they may have options if that's possible I think it's really important and really planning everything around that patient experience I think that is just the key to success. Thank you so much. Now, Anne-Marie, as one of our patients in our patient design studio here at Metadata, can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to involve patients in the design of decentralized trial components or direct-to-patient components such as ePro and live video visits? 
Sure, and I, I think that um, Roz just spoke volumes when she said it's so important to ask the patients what their preferences are. There, there are patients that are very comfortable with doing something in a, in a video form. And then there are others that, you know, I advocate primarily in the oncology space and most cancer patients tend to want to have that hands-on visit at some point. It doesn't necessarily need to be every single time, but there are points in time where you feel like I need to see my doctor. I want him to, you know, do the normal, like we're, we're used to. He's checking my neck. He's checking my ankles. They're checking to see if there's lymph nodes that are like, I don't know how to do that. I, you know, I don't, I can't do that to myself. So I, I think the key is in making sure that the patient voice is heard early and often and that as things are evolving in real time with regard to any given trial or globally, the, the sponsors and the sites are able to pivot to make sure that they're incorporating the needs of the patient into everything that's being done. And with, in my work with the design team um, at Medidata, I know that there were a couple of times that I, I threw out an anecdotal about something that had happened to me and it was like a light bulb went off on the part of the design team where they, they, they would come back to me and say, after the whole thing was done, we never even considered that. And as an example, it was you know telehealth and they were so concerned that, and and by they i'm talking about everybody that is building building these things out one patient several doctors all need to be on a call and i i was expressing my own frustration by trying to be on a call with my mom and they couldn't figure out how to bring me in on the screen with her and the doctor because I was in a third location. To me, that was ludicrous because I have been spending all of my time since um, the beginning of March on Zoom, Microsoft Teams, every web platform out there with you know the Brady Bunch screen. And, and here they are at a, like a major cancer institute saying, we don't know how to do that. You gotta call her on speakerphone and turn the volume up so that she can hear what the doctor is saying. And hopefully if she has something to add, he'll be able to hear her. So I'm so appreciative of the fact that they now see we need to be able to bring people not only on the medical side, but on the patient side. You know, the, the, the presumption was patients would always have their care person beside them. And that's not always the, in, in fact, it's often not the case. So I appreciate the work that's being done on that, you know, on that aspect of it. Thank you so much. Jeff, I'd like to ask you, how can we incorporate the site voice into the design of decentralized and direct patient trial components? What's the best way to do this? So I would first state that the site voice should be inferior to the patient voice. We have to be designing protocols and designing how we're, we're going to take care of logistics around the patient. BYOD, create the ability for patients to use their own phone for, through an app rather than me having to give them a separate device that they're going to forget when they're packing their luggage and traveling. Um, when it comes to the site voice, if we want to be most successful with, with direct-to-patient research, 
then we have to design protocols strongly, if not 100% around direct-to-patient. Now, let me take a step back and say, I always wanna give the patient the option to physically come in. We just heard that, right? Design the protocol so that the patient has the option to physically come in and be seen in person, but design the protocol around the ability to do direct-to-patient. If we can truly do that, then the site could be enrolling patients from 400 miles away across their state, and they can have large volume enrollment in a decentralized trial. But when we're doing these hybrid direct-to-patient trials where most of the visits might be in, in person or maybe it's 50-50, then again, the site's enrollment capabilities are held down by the geographic restrictions of the, of the in-person visits. And that's the net loss for the site. So Roz, what are some easy ways or less than difficult ways for <laughs> clinical trial teams to start implementing direct to patient trial components, taking into account the best practices that Anne-Marie and Jeff so eloquently uh, told us about? Great question. Um, so we've already said listen to patients and caregivers. Caregivers are absolutely critical too. Um, getting sponsors to review every protocol for um, DCT opportunities. There's usually something you can do to make a patient's life easier. So making that just standard practice I think is really important. And even going further and building the protocols proactively so that they give that flexibility for home-based or community-based participation. As a um, sponsor or a CRO to partner with the highest quality vendors that you can. There are lots of startups out there. Um, some are amazing, some maybe not so much. So it's important, I think, to do due diligence to make sure that people really are working with the best so that we optimize the patient and the site experience. And I think also the um, working with regulators, I think so um, that's kind of a broader thing for industry, I guess. So during COVID, um, a lot of regulators around the world um, switched quite quickly so that they would um, open up the ability to do some of these home-based things where maybe they hadn't before. Um, a couple of them are switching back with, uh, with the wave of the pandemic slowing down, um, but a lot of them are keeping their guidelines, um, but some of them maybe don't have huge amounts of experience. So I think working with those regulators to make sure that they can really see the benefits and that they feel confident in providing guidance for the long term. Um, and also something we talked about earlier around the technology and kind of the patient usability. Um, one of the things that we do is this trial in a box. So if you imagine being a patient at site and being told that you can join this decentralized trial when you're being screened, if one of the members of the site staff then has to go and get a provision device, for example, out of a box, they may not have thought about it till that moment. So they may open the box and it might be a brand new phone that's not charged, doesn't have a SIM card in. Um, and so what we try to do is make sure that we build all of those things in up front, particularly if there are sensors involved as well, so that everything goes to the site ready. So as soon as that patient's ready, so is the device. And if there are multiple devices, as I mentioned with sensors and things involved, you provide written guidance to the patients and the site staff so they know what to do and also to color code the charger with the device so that it's very clear and people don't get mixed up about what goes with where and how it should be used so just thinking through all those minute steps of the patient experience and the site experience so that we make things as easy as possible for them the technology side um, and also providing with someone on the end of the phone to answer questions if, if they get in a bit of a muddle or they just need some reminders. But I think good old fashioned paper as well, as I say, so they've got guidance to follow um, is really beneficial too. 
there's some of my tips. I could go on forever, but I won't because I'm sure you've got other questions for other people too. If I could jump in very briefly, we have to make things as simple as possible, right? Jeff Bezos, Amazon was so ridiculously successful so rapidly because he was, he was a zealot around making the buying process as simple as possible. He wanted one-click purchasing and people said it can't be done. And he said, do it anyway. The more we've been making our industry more complicated on the patient and on the sites for decades, technology is continuing in that direction. The more devices we have to use, the more sensors, the more individual chargers, the more rules and, and restrictions and, and instruction sheets, we're only going to hurt ourselves. So we need to move in this direction, but we have to always remember the patient experience and we have to think, how do we make this so simple that no patient would balk? I agree, Jeff. Actually, we use a different analogy. So I love the Jeff Bezos analogy. The one that we talk about often is thinking about when you go to an airport. So you kind of automatically know where to go when you kind of go with the flow and end up in the right place. So particularly thinking about the user experience in terms of the technology itself, it should be really intuitive and everything should look clear and simple. So it's not overwhelming when you go in there and you're not hunting around for which thing you need to do next. But that really simple flow, I absolutely agree, is so so critical otherwise people will give up because it's just too tricky so this is Anne marie and you know what i i, I want to jump in here and make just a couple of observations jeff made a fabulous point earlier about being able to reach out into much much wider communities at, at a much further distance from the site by you know using these direct to patient or uh, what what I've heard being used by a number of regulatory folks the democratization of clinical trials to you know reduce the current disparity gap that we're seeing in accruing these trials we can accrue faster we can accrue we can we can you know start getting answers and you know, nowhere is it more obvious than what's happening right now with the vaccine trials that are go ongoing. Why can't this ca be carried forward into every research space? Obviously not at the, you know, we're in an, a unique situation and it's got to be done quickly. Um, and I, 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 I fret sometimes that science may be left a little bit behind when science should always, we should always be following the science. But I do think there are ways to marry that and make sure it moves forward. And, and what Roz just said about just kind of following the path, for example, in an airport, but you, you, we have to also be mindful of the fact that, you know, not everybody travels and would know their way around an airport or wouldn't realize the, the, the anxiety they would feel in advance of getting to the airport because once they did get there, they would know, they, they would see that they're just kind of following, following the crowd or following the arrows or following the signs. But entering into a clinical trial, knowing you're gonna kind of go with the flow, until you're actually in it, you don't know what that all means. So from a patient perspective, I think you know, the more clarity we can bring to the table up front, the better it is for everyone. It saves, it saves phone calls back to the CRAs. It saves, it saves anxiety on the part of the patient. It becomes a winning situation when we can provide as much information as possible. 
Absolutely. Thank you all so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I just have one final question for all of you before we sadly have to say goodbye. And Roz, you spoke earlier that you're seeing some sponsors um, determining that they want to go back to the way things were in a post-COVID world. That is, not worrying about incorporating technology and going back to having all on-site visits. And I'd just like to ask all three of you, should we switch back post-COVID or should we keep blazing new trails with new technology, incorporating the patient voice in a high-touch and high-tech world? Anne-Marie, what's your vote? We need to move forward. The, I mean, anyone that's ever tried to navigate clinicaltrials.gov can just speak to the difficulty of even finding a trial, much less trying to get on one. So I'm all for blazing new trails and then putting it in each individual patient's lap to say, I, I want kind of what they're doing with schools right now across the U.S. We're either going full remote or we're doing full in, in class with all kinds of protections or we're doing a hybrid model and basically it's being left up to the individual. So I think when we build these protocols, it's important to be mindful of preferences and the, the more uh, ways that we can incorporate as many options as possible without breaking the back the financial back of the trial, I think the better results we'll see in accruing and you know getting answers to all of the great questions that need to be answered in the science world. Jeff, how do you feel? I feel that we'll never go back. The silver lining of COVID is that it was painful. There's a phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. That's not really true because we would all come up with things that are necessary, like direct-to-patient innovation, and yet we don't do them. Why? Well, because sure, it's necessary. We should be doing that, but it wasn't painful enough. COVID created enough pain for our industry to say the pain of of not doing this is greater than the pain of implementing new technologies, implementing e-consent, implementing telemedicine and direct patient visits. And that's, that's the silver lining. That's a wonderful thing. I don't think we'll go back. And I certainly don't think we should ever go back. In the age of COVID, we are moving faster on everything. Now that we know that we could do it this way, why would we ever allow ourselves to slip back? And Roz, any final words in, in this question? Yes, I totally agree. So I think now patients have seen what's possible and the convenience that they can have for being part of a trial from the home. How could we ask them to change back to the way that things were before? And those sites that maybe were a bit more reticent have had the experience and we're hearing that they're a lot more confident. So I guess they're going to be less likely to want to turn back as well. Regulators are getting that experience. So we're going to have more clarity there around the world. And I think sponsors are seeing that this innovation is so important to make sure that their trials are recruiting on time. So thinking of all of those key stakeholders, particularly the patients and the caregivers, I, I really don't think that we could go back. Um, so I'm really excited, as Jeff said, obviously COVID has been awful, but the acceleration that we've seen in adoption here has just been absolutely amazing and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen over the next couple of years. So there you have it Danny. You've got four votes for blazing new trails, adopting technology, and keeping the patient front and center. Thank you so much everyone for that great discussion on enabling clinical trial continuity with live video visits. Again, you just listened to Kelly McKee who's the Senior Director of Patient Recruitment and Registries at Medidata. 
Anne-Marie Mercurio is a patient and research advocate, caregiver. Rosamond Round is VP of ParXL's Patient Innovation Center. And Dr. Jeff Kingsley is the founder and CEO of IACT Health. For more information on PharmaTalk podcast, visit theconferenceforum.org. But thank you so much, everyone, for that incredible discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.